Here's a quick word from our football educational partners over at the Scouting Academy. Listen, we've said it all the time. If you love the analysis and you're passionate about football, then you really need to check out the Scouting Academy. Whether you're a football coach, aspiring writer, or even aspiring football agent, the Scouting Academy is really a perfect place for you to learn and develop your skills as an analyst. With curriculum that spans over 375 years of coaching and personnel experience, the Scouting Academy offers you a 16-week online course that you can tailor and build to meet your needs and your interests. Whether you're learning about wide receivers or defensive linemen, you can make the experience what you want it to be. Listen, I've said it to you on this podcast many times. I've spent my own money, my own time, and time away from my friends and family because I am just this passionate about this game. And the Scouting Academy is the place where I really feel like I've learned the most I've ever learned about the game of football. It's made me a better analyst. It's made me a better person in terms of the coaching I do on the field. I can't say enough great things about it. If you have any questions about the Scouting Academy, please don't hesitate to reach out to Dan Hatman on Twitter or reach out to the Scouting Academy online via email. I'm open to all questions as well. Heck, I'm still even a student there myself. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I really think that once you learn all the tools and gain the knowledge that they have to offer, I really think you're going to be absolutely excited about the game of football again. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and I am really excited and privileged to have once again back on the show, Mr. Matt Waldman. Matt, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's always fun to get to talk about these players with you. We enjoyed having you on the Audible when we did our first night of the draft. You did just a, such a fantastic job. And and so, again, it's always just great to be able to talk ball with you. Absolutely. So I, it's been about a month or so now since that night that I was privileged to join you guys and talk about what was going on round one. And still, I think, a lot to process and kind of digest about these rookies, about these landing spots we've been doing, you know, mock drafts and talking rookie rankings and sleepers. And I've had on some guests from the industry like Mike Taglier and Matt Williamson. And it's always fun to pick other people's brains to kind of, you know, hear what their takes are. So I know we talked about a lot of players pre-draft, but we didn't cover everybody. And obviously now with landing spots, you know, there's so much more to kind of break down and dissect. So I figured we'd have a little bit of a two-part series here. We're going to talk quarterbacks and running backs tonight. And then on the next podcast, It'll be wide receivers and tight ends. So really excited for you to be here with me. So let's get right into it. Let's let's start the quarterback position. I know sometimes in the fantasy realm, they lose a little bit of focus because of the devaluing of that position if it's only a one quarterback league, but more even away from the fantasy landscape, just these quarterbacks and their landing spots. And, and let's start with the guy who, when I was on the show there with you on the Audible on opening night, we were stunned and in disbelief when the Giants took Daniel Jones at number six. We've talked a lot about him as what we were concerned about as him as a player. 
Matt, what do you think about now that he is with the Giants, where do you see a scenario of maybe what the Giants could it could do for him that maybe he could at least exceed our expectations a little bit in the future to be a average to maybe an above average quarterback? What did the Giants got to put in place to kind of make that around him set the set the scene for him to maybe find success even though we have some questions about his actual talent it's going to be interesting because one they're going to need to really continue to develop that offensive line there's some promise along that offensive line they maybe need one more piece to probably get that offensive line in a cohesive state where it's going to that talent's all going to really gel um and i think that they've gone a fair bit of lengths to be able to make that better. So they'll have some more time in the pocket. Um, they need another receiver. Could it be, you know, certainly Golden Tate is an interesting guy. Um, and bringing him in, having a veteran, that's going to be helpful. Having someone like um, Sterling Shepard to me, Sterling Shepard is, he's a better football player than he is a fantasy football player, but he's where he's supposed to be. He, you know, he gets into open space. He's able to get some separation. He's going to be where he needs to be in the underneath zones. He's he's not much more than that. Um, I think a lot of people want him to be much more than that. He showed much more than that at Oklahoma. But it hasn't translated to the NFL unless he's playing defenses that are banged up or have blown coverages on a regular basis. Those are usually his biggest weeks. Um, they're going to need Evan Ingram to stay healthy. Um, and, they're going to, and they're going to need to get another receiver who can op- replace some of what Odell Beckham Jr. left that you know left when he went to Cleveland. Um, so you know, could that be Reggie White Jr.? Maybe that's going to be an interesting question. Maybe down the line, we'll talk about receivers in a little bit. But I think that plus time, he's going to need. I think it would be best for him to get acclimated to the city, to get acclimated to the routine of practice, to to create a routine for his nutrition, to create a new routine for his. Um, practice habits out, in and outside of um, the facility um, and kind of continue to work at his craft and and get that year, hopefully, where Eli Manning can play. And, and maybe that gives him the opportunity to be prepared for when he takes the field, at least to an extent that when things go wrong, as they usually do for young players at some point, that he can recover faster and learn quickly because he has a structure in place. And he also has good surrounding and t- talent in place. And all the feedback that he's going to get, he can handle that because he's not worried about bills or what the age, you know, what sort of um, deals he has with agents or where he's going to live or how to get to, from one place to the next or deal with newfound problems that money brings when you when you're dealing with relatives and you're dealing with friends and, and social appearances and the, the things that go with being a quarterback in the, in New York um, and how you deal with things in the media. So there's a lot that happens with all of that. And I think that he needs more than anything time because we can talk about how smart he is, how talented he is, you know, physically and some of the things that he does intellectually, that's very good, but you can't teach wisdom. You can't teach maturity and, and there are certain experiences like fame and notoriety and living and, you know, sudden money that are very difficult experiences. And if you're going to be the figurehead of or the future figurehead of an organization, you need some time to kind of acclimate and get onboarded. And a lot of teams don't do that for quarterbacks and all these off field things contribute to the on field 
woes because it compounds their ability, compounds the mistakes they make in the sense that they have difficulty being able to adjust because they don't have structures in place. So I think the Giants are in the right mode right now, but we'll see if a lot of that's lip service come time, you know, week five, week six, and the Giants have won two games or three games and, and they feel like they need to do something to shake it up. And then they abandon that good plan that they had because a lot of teams end up doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting because I think the the swell of people who, as mad as they were that the that the fan base in terms of taking him, I do think that same fan base is going to be, you know, basically knocking down the doors, wanting to actually see him get on the field sooner rather than later. Especially if, like you said, they're, you know, they're sitting there two and four, you know, or two and five, and the season kind of seems like it's already slipping away. People are going to want to to see the rookie and do the Giants kind of hold off a little bit longer. I think it's going to be really interesting to follow. Do you think on the field in terms of schematically a little bit, and in terms of building the foundation around him, do you think the Giants maybe look at a scenario of what the Bears kind of have done for Mitchell Trubisky? Trubisky has some athleticism and mobility to his game as well. I don't know if I ever see the Bears like putting the entire offense built around Mitchell Trubisky. I, I think they want him to be more of a facilitator. They went out and got him a lot of weapons in that first, after the first, after his rookie year, Allen Robinson, Trey Burden, they aggressively went and got Anthony Miller, you know, now this year they've upgraded the running back situation. Do you kind of see any similarities with maybe what the bears have asked of Trubisky and what they've done around Trubisky to try to hopefully set him up for success? Do you think the giants might see some similarities in terms of schematically, in terms of using that athleticism and maybe take that time to try to build around him all also. Well, I hope so, um, but it would mean them having to spread the field a little bit more. Um, they, I think they are slowly, they've, they've gradually built this offensive line in a way where the Bears had a good offensive line to begin with. So it, it was a good offensive line, with, and then they were able to add more receiving talent, but a lot of it's younger receiving talent or mid-career guys. And I don't know if Colton Tate's really a mid-career guy, and I don't think Sterling Shepard really fits in the way that I know a lot of people probably like Sterling Shepard, but he doesn't offer anything after the catch. He doesn't get vertical. So when I see him, his game's fairly limited. He's very good at what he does, but they need more there. And so I, I'm not sure it's happening along those lines yet. Um, I think we're going to need to see another year in, or, in order to tell. I mean, certainly Saquon Barkley's instant offense. Evan Ingram, that could be really good. To me, it's for it to happen this year, there's a big if, and that if is, do they find an X receiver or a flanker who can be that guy in that offense? And I'm just not sure Golden Tate's that guy. He might be best as a slot. And I think Sterling Shepard might be best as a slot. So who's the outside guy? Is it Evan Ingram? You know, well, they didn't get another tight end because they could have moved Evan Ingram maybe to an X, and that might have been a better fit for him in a certain way if you look at his athletic ability. Um, but they're not doing that. So they're going to need to kind of, you know, they can take credit for it. And I think there's reason to take credit for it. But if a guy like Reggie White Jr., who I think has a Marvin Jones-like skill to his game, getting Odell's number, which may not mean a whole lot in if he doesn't play well, but they have expectations for him to play well, I think, as a late-round pick. If he plays the way the scouts thought he would, which is the best prospect they've seen at Monmouth, period, which includes, you know, Chris Hogan and, and Miles Austin. If he can be a Miles Austin plus type of player, uh, 
or Chris Hogan plus type of player, that may give them more flexibility and that may actually help facilitate that offense faster. Um, but he is going to need that because his weaknesses, as we've talked about, are the decision making in terms of the quickness of identifying and moving from point to point on the field. And, you know, he's tough as all get out, but you, you need to make things easier for him. And like you said with Trubisky, they didn't put everything on him and they don't want to put everything on him. And I don't think Jones, well, Jones is athletic. And yes, they talk about him being a tight end. Trubisky might be one of the, might be one of the five or six best runners in the league in an underrated way. I think he's a better runner than Deshaun Watson. And I know a lot of people might find that crazy to say, but if you really watch their tape, Trubisky's a pretty rugged guy with very good quickness and movement. Um, whereas I think Watson's a little more straight line-ish. So I look at John Jones and I think he's athletic, but in a way that you look at a tight end and go, you know, like Ryan Tannehill was a good slot receiver kind of, you know, at AM, and he could move like a wide receiver back in the day. Daniel Jones isn't that kind of athlete, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with that. And I do think Trubisky's athleticism and movement skills do go a little bit under the radar and people don't acknowledge. And and I think I think you're right about the in terms of athleticism and quickness and, and running ability, I think Trubisky is probably better than Watson. I think people, you know, we haven't seen a lot of that from Watson in, in the NFL as much as I think maybe people thought we were going to see. Uh, but I think maybe it was just overhyped a little bit. He, he kind of picked and chose the spots at Clemson of when he was going to really uh, make a play with his legs. And I think people kind of looked at that and, and thought a little bit more that he was more of that. And I, I think it was overblown at times. So it's going to be interesting. He's he's going to be one of the most fascinating quarterbacks to continue to follow up on and see if the NFL was seeing something that you know a you lot didn't. of draft Twitter wasn't and or vice versa and it's going to be one of these things that we probably won't know much this year maybe the second half or the back stretch we see a little bit of a glimpse but it's it's going to be some you know take some time before you know we probably get a definitive answer on that if we bounce to the top of the draft Kyler Murray. I know you over at your podcast have had some uh, discussions about his offense that he's going into. In terms of a landing spot, in terms of that offense, is it going to be unlike anything we've seen schematically at the NFL level, in your opinion? I mean, listen, so many of the college schemes have, have migrated in some capacity at times in the NFL. But do we think what his plans are? I mean, you saw, I mean, obviously, Andy Isabella, Hakeem Butler, Keyshawn Johnson, you know, Caleb Wilson at the end of the draft. They still got Fitzgerald, you know, Christian Kirk. Is it going to be like anything we've seen attempted at the NFL level, you think, in your opinion? Or is it going to be very unique to what we're accustomed to? I think it's... um. I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I'm kind of going back and forth with this. It seems like with each passing day or week, as I start to learn more or add more to it, I've looked at to the end of the equation. I think we'll see a few things that are very, that stand out as very different interpretations of things we've seen in the past. Like it'll be rooted in football that we know, but it'll be, a, it'll be a wrinkle that'll be a little bit different, you know, or we'll see a lot more, work from the gun than we ever than we normally see from NFL quarterbacks and a, and a dependence on that on a certain on a certain level if it works well 
and he doesn't get influenced or pushed to to make some adjustments because teams say, yeah, you, it sounds great that you're going to spread the field all the time, but you know, now it's not working. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, but I think that he's, I think what we'll see is maybe some interesting run, run plays from formations that look like pass formations or some odd looking um, alignments where, you, you know, you normally would see someone pass there, but you can see the, the run pass bind that the alignments put people in. Um, but more than anything, you know, and I'll, I'll credit, I think Walter Mitchell from red revenge of the birds, you know, reading some of his work, talking about this offensive line and talking about how it's going to make defenses react. And I think what you're going to see, as he noted, was you're going to see more three and four man rushes and fewer players in the box. You're going to have to devote a spy to Kyler Murray, which again limits the amount of pass rush that you're going to get. You're going to see a lot more cover two. You're going to see a lot more nickel. Um, and that's going to help the run game a lot more. And I think really the, you look at the, the offenses, and and I and I was writing about um, about um, about Johnson, David Johnson, today, and it was it was something where I read that Darren Urban of the Cardinals said that he expects that Johnson may see fewer receptions in this offense than before, and I thought that makes no sense. Like that absolutely makes no sense to me. But I, I wanted to see why he. Darren thought that and I didn't you know I probably the first thing I probably should have done if I was really that interested is to ask Darren you know if he would and see if he would respond to me but instead I just kind of I'm kind of presumed let's look at what he's looking at and what he was looking at was you know stats at at um, Texas Tech well the past three years yeah the 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 running back stable as a whole averaged maybe three to four hundred yards in receiving and maybe two to three touchdowns but if you go back three years prior to that, when you know Justin Stockton, Kenny Williams, and and DeAndre Washington were playing, they averaged more like between sixty-five to eighty receptions as a as a as a unit, and about you know seven hundred yards and um, five touchdowns, and that's over a, a twelve and a half game average over those three years. So if you extrapolate that, you start to see closer to ninety catches. For you know, over 800 yards and um, seven touchdowns. You know, if you were extrapolate to a 16 game season for that offense, and you start thinking, David Johnson, when you look at his look, the looks for him, you start to see he, you know, his his best year, he he got about 90 percent of the target share, or and and the yardage and all the touchdowns, and then his worst year last year. He got about 70% or 75% of the target share um, and about 80, I think 80% of the yards and all of the touchdowns. So worst case scenario, I think you're looking at David Johnson being a big cog in this passing offense and they're going to split him out. You're going to see he's the one defined guy in this offense that I think we're going to see used a lot. And we got to remember that too, that the, the Red Raiders also had backs that, that averaged, you know, per season, like close to a thousand yards, if not over that, well over four yards per carry. They were good rushing attacks. They were able to run from this look, these looks. And I think so, you know, to me, David Johnson's going to have a good year. But then I have questions about these receivers. They all seem like slot receivers to me. Larry Fitzgerald's older. Now he's basically, that was the best position for him now that he's slowed down. Christian Kirk was was a slot receiver at Texas A&M and he's like an 
he's like kind of Sterling Shepard as a flanker. Like, are you are you really getting that separation skill you want? Was that Josh Rosen? Was it his first year acclimation? I don't know. I thought he'd be better in the slot. So now you're looking at two players along with Andy Isabella, who seems to me, until he can prove he can defeat press and not play like, you know, not play playground separation rules with with it, um, and actually show that he can defeat defeated in physical coverage he's better in the slot so who's gonna play outside you know other than maybe Hakeem Butler so I'm interested to see how he moves people around because I think that's what he's gonna have to do is move a lot of people around to get them um to get them open in different ways so it's not anything's gonna I don't think players are gonna have as much of a defined role they're gonna have two or three roles and how soon can some of these young guys acclimate to having multiple roles in that offense um, I think fairly fast because it's a, you know, the, the air raids a fairly distilled version of the West coast offense. So things are a little simpler in, in some regards, but um, add all this up. And what I see is a good year for David Johnson. I have no idea for these wide receivers, except that I don't believe in Andy Isabella. I still don't get it um, in terms of like where he's going to, if he's an X and, He's great as an X right off the bat. I'll be shocked. You know, I mean, I'm not going to pull a Josh Norris eat my tweet type of thing, but I, I'm I'm almost I'm almost getting an appetite for that um, from that pers- perspective. But I think Kyler Murray and this offensive line uh, that's going to be the big key here. So I think Murray's a guy that probably for half the year has a really strong season. Hopefully it'll be the second half of the season for fantasy players. Um, and also hopefully for the second half, because it gives them momentum heading into the following season and gives them a sense of confidence. Cause if you start strong early and then the bottom falls out from under them, that's a tough thing for a young player to have to overcome. Cause also it, it creates more questions about, is he really that good? Once the, you know, teams figured him out, how did, you know, he can't handle it. You'll get all these types of doubts and questions about, that into the season if he has a tough second half. But I think he'll have a better second half than he will first half. Yeah, I mean, you you had a lot of great information there. The David Johnson stuff is is something that I think is is really uh, interesting because I do think that he is going to be a big focal point, you know, of the passing game. I mean, I, I know it's not an apples-apples comparison, but if you think about, like, Mike Leach and his air raid system, even this year, I mean, James Williams, like, caught, like, 75 or 80 passes like it's at times a very focal point of the air raid offense if they have a running back capable of I think being a good receiver David Johnson has proven that and he's gonna like you you talked about team defenses are gonna play a lot more nickel a lot more dime there's gonna be rushing lanes there for David Johnson so I'm right there with you I'd be stunned if he doesn't have a really good statistical year in terms of running and I do think he's gonna see a lot of work in the passing game as well and I think the Kyler Murray thing is fascinating Uh, to me it's the sustainability does he hit the ground and early in the year defenses just don't have a lot to look at in terms of film to really analyze what's going on. And you almost wonder, you know, you said it would be better if it's the other way where he starts slow and then kind of rides the momentum to close out the year. I almost wonder if, if it's not impossible that it almost could be a little bit of reverse in year one. I'm that afraid may- of that. That, that he might come out blazing early on because it's new to the defenses. And I know, you know, I know the air raid and the spread, 
we've seen it and, and defenses have seen it in the NFL, but maybe not as much as what Kingsbury wants to do. And then you wonder if after a couple of weeks and now defensive coordinators are starting to see tendencies and, and really break down what he's doing. Well, then can he adjust? Because in the collegiate game, you almost feel like they never really have to adjust on the offensive side, that their skill level, that their talent level, yeah. and the lack of defense is usually a lot of this isn't like the Big 12 or the Pac-12. Like a lot of times the offenses don't really have to adjust to defenses figuring them out. So you, you, in the NFL, though, we know defenses are going to adjust and make, you know, and, and pick up on tendencies that it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how he comes out but then is there a point during the year where we start to see them get figured out a little bit? And that's going to make or break. I mean, Steve Spurrier years and years ago came to the NFL thinking his style was going to work. And, it, you know, it, it had some glimpses of, of excitement, but it, it fizzled out pretty quickly when he realized he didn't have all the best athletes and superior talent that, you know, he was working with often there in Florida. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this pieces together. I agree. And I think that I think and that's the thing that I, I'm worried about with Murray. And the thing is with Murray is that what I like about with Kingsbury and Murray is that Kingsbury is more open to off script play. So early on, he's going to allow to be, he's going to be allowed to improvise. So the thing is, is if we go with your thought and probably more my fear and prevailing thought as well is early on, He'll probably get away with some of these improvisational plays because defenses won't anticipate him or doing those types of things to the level that he does. And then defenses are going to go, well, these are his tendencies when he breaks off script. This is how we're going to stop that. And then he doesn't figure out how to overcome it. Um, the reverse could be that he has to feel his way out. And because he leaned on being such an athlete early on that he tries things that Manziel tried, that Baker Mayfield tried, that, Michael Vick tried anybody, Russell Wilson, and realized, ooh, I can't do that anymore. This isn't the Pac-10, the Big 12, the Big 10. I can't do this. I've got to take a different route here and not lean so much in this direction, or I can't wait this long to run, or I can't do take this type of track and figure that out after four or five games. And then suddenly it starts to click for them of what they can do, and then they make those adjustments and have a better first or second half. So we pretty much explained how it that I think we both agree that it'll probably be fairly streaky for him. There'll be a block of good and a block of bad. And we can see how it could be good or bad early or late, depending on which factors occur. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun to watch. And I'm even excited to see them in preseason a little bit, just to, yeah. in terms of what they show. They're probably not going to show too much and keep it a little vanilla, but I think we might see a couple glimpses here or there uh, to kind of make some sense of it. Let's take this to Dwayne Haskins. If I remember correctly, I think we, I know I was a fan of him. I think you were a fan of him as well. I have some reservations about the landing spot from, I think he's going to be pushed onto the field probably immediately. Uh, and the foundation around him right now, we don't really know what's going on with, with guys. Is he going to be back? Obviously they also have Adrian Peterson there. Their receivers a little bit suspect, I think, is being generous there. I'm concerned a little bit about Haskins being thrown into the fire with not a lot of collegiate experience. 
Is that something that you worry about, or do you like the landing spot in Washington for Haskins? I mean, I like the landing spot. I'm just concerned that he might get rushed a little bit too quickly and then not set him up for success. I'm, I like the landing spot in theory because when the the off the starting offensive line on paper is very good, Adrian Peterson is still a really darn good physical back, even though he doesn't have long speed anymore. Jordan Reed's a great weapon when he's healthy. Paul Richardson is an underrated value on a per touch basis as a weapon that bordered and that was better than Antonio Brown on a per touch basis at Seattle at certain points of seasons when he's healthy. But the problem is, is when are these guys ever health ever healthy? It seems like the offensive line is banged up. They got to switch people around all year long. Chris Thompson gets hurt all the time, um, and you don't get to you maximize his skill as a as a running back in space. Richardson gets hurt all all the time. We know Jordan Reed. I mean, Jordan Reed has a red cross symbol next to him pretty much in every fantasy site that that's ever been made, um, and it might as well just stay there. I mean, it's kind of like one of those open closed doors that hang hang on the. Um, hang on a, or a signs that hang on a door in a shop, you know, you could probably put the red cross sign on both sides and, and you wouldn't be wrong with him. So the problem with that is that when you don't have continuity on your offensive line, because so many guys get hurt that you've got to switch people around at different positions, suddenly that impacts the ground game. It impacts pass protection. It impacts how quickly these players have to get in and out of their routes. And if the starting receivers aren't healthy, then now you don't have the rapport with your, with the, the younger receivers because you haven't practiced with them with as many reps all summer long and during the year. So it disrupts a whole bunch of different factors to make, it's a very disruptive thing for a young quarterback and especially one who's also just trying to learn the offense and trying to um, learn the speed of the game against NFL defenses and figure out different types of coverage looks that they haven't seen before or uh, different variations of it that, and trickery that happens pre and post snap. So I think that as as intellectual as Dwayne Haskins is, he still has a lot of factors that aren't going to really support him if he has to play right away. And you have a perfectly good journeyman quarterback in Case Keenum who can hold down that fort for you for a while early on. So to me, if Daniel, um, you know, what's what's our owner's name here for, for Washington? Schneider. Daniel Schneider, yes. If Daniel Schneider gets impatient, and he's the reason, He'll be the reason. If he gets impatient and wants his new fantasy football toy on the field, then he's going to get Haskins on the field. That's what's going to happen. Or Jay Gruden's going to say, I had enough and get fired in the same way that Mike Shanahan probably did. Um, you know, but it's a, it's a scenario where um, I like it in theory, but he doesn't, he's going to need everyone to stay healthy if he's going to play right away. And if that happens, it, it can work out for him. I think he more than anything, he needs the offensive line to do well. If the offensive line can stay healthy, he has a fighting shot where he's not going to be demoralized heading into 2020. But if that offensive line is as banged up as it was last year, you can forget about it. It's going to be a tough season for him. And while I don't think it'll be a Deshaun Kaiser like disaster, it could be a little rough for him. And there could be people in, even in the organization that might um, react and say they have questions about him um, after they've thrown him into the fire a little too early. Um, but, it, but if that line stays healthy, they have the run game with or without guys. They have the, they have a couple of good receivers if they can stay healthy, if they can't, then you're going to see a lot of ups and downs with him where you see 
him make good plays, but his receivers not be able to finish them. Yeah, I mean, spot on right there about there's some things to get excited about the landing spot. But like I said, right at the top with Haskins, I think some of the reservations that I said you laid out really nicely as well that, you know, the injuries and some of the other stuff that if if Snyder does get impatient, if he force feeds the coaching staff to get him on the field sooner rather than later, it could it could get you know could go south there, and I think that could end up you know hurting his development and progress. That if if they kind of gave him the time and and they built that foundation around, we might see Haskins live up to I think the expectations and potential that you and I both see in him. Let's take this to a guy who should get some time to acclimate himself if he if Cam Newton's injury is okay. And that's Will Greer, a guy who I know you were a big fan of. We talked about him when you were on pre-draft. Matt and I were both fans as well. What do you make of obviously we both think it's tremendous value where they got him at the end of round three, but what do you make about the landing spot there in Carolina? You know, maybe if he does get an opportunity, you know, within a, I don't know, a year or two, you know, with the weapons that they have there, do you like the spot for Greer? Is it, would you rather have seen him somewhere else? I like the spot. Well, I think there are a few spots I'd rather see. It would be nitpicking because Carolina has a decent offensive line that can get, it's trying to get better. I mean, I know they've had woes for Newton before, but it wasn't bad last year. I think they have a, They've figured out a scheme that's pretty helpful for what they do. Um, you know, obviously, you love the running game. and You know, I think Christian McCaffrey is an underrated player between the tackles, but he's also, you know, obviously one of the best receiving backs in the league, and they're figuring out how to utilize him. But they have, they're also embracing the hybrid roles of DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel, and then you have a young, nice tight end in Ian Thomas. But, Greg, you know, Greg Olson's going to be back. And I think that foot injury that plagued him for the past two years seems like he's cleared and ready to go. So I'm not worried about a 34, 35-year-old tight end for one more year or two more years because he's in tremendous shape. And he is close to that tier of guys like Tony Gonzalez and Antonio Gates and, um, you know, guys who played well into, you know, their mid to late 30s and still performed well. He may not stretch the seam like he used to, but he's still going to be a decent option. And when you put, you know, Olsen may no longer be there at that point when Greer gets into the game. But when Greer does play, these receivers are set up to be anticipatory type of receivers. They're not go up and win the ball rebounders like Kelvin Benjamin was. You know, they're guys that you want to target them in stride, in open space, and let them um, run and let them be able to get into that open field. And while Cam Newton is an excellent quarterback – one of his weaknesses to an extent is anticipation. He's not a great anticipation thrower. Will Greer's a fantastic anticipation thrower, and that's how he really made his living as a, as a deep vertical passer with such great accuracy because you look at these receivers that he had at West Virginia, and he was just dropping dimes on these guys, um, basically throwing, getting rid of the ball early. He didn't need to throw the ball 50, 60 yards downfield to get these guys. He got rid of the ball at 25, 30-yard point, and the receivers were able to catch it at 30, 35 yards, and you didn't need to throw it any further than that. They're going to have the ball. They're going to have their maximized separation, 
and they're going to be able to get downfield. And that's one of the things about the vertical game. I think so many people misunderstand, even quarterbacks that we see who do the analysis. They always say, well, you need to at least be able to throw the ball 40, 50 yards. You need to be able to throw the ball 60 yards. And they're always talking about arm strength, arm strength, arm strength. But you ever notice when you watch a receiver get separation, the height of his separation is usually at about 25 to 30 yards on a deeper pass. And it's the quarterback who waited too long, oftentimes hitching once or twice or patting the ball or shuffling when he didn't need to an extra step or two that now the ball's coming out that second, one second later. And the receiver at this point has already had to travel an extra 10 yards and then maybe it's another 10 to 15 yards tacked onto that. And at that point, guess who's being able to recover now? The corner. And he had like, at the beginning, the receiver had three, four yards on the corner with that initial move and the acceleration. You know, if you get the ball out earlier, you're going to take advantage of that sooner and the receiver's going to have more acceleration. And he's not slowing down to track the ball, you know, those types of things that happen with the throw. And Greer's so good at being able to anticipate like that. And those receivers aren't big guys who go up and win it. So if you can take advantage of their deep skill, their vertical skills earlier in the play, you can be pretty dynamic. And I think that that's what, how he matches up well with those receivers. Now it would still be nice to have a guy who can go up and win it, you know, and be physical um, to an extent or deal with physical play and catch the ball. Well, even if it's an Antonio Brown or Odell Beckham type of player and not a Mike Evans type of guy, and that would be helpful. But I think that this team has the pieces in place where Greer can come in and 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 be at least functional and help this team, you know, maybe not be the reason they win games, but not be the reason that but still be a reason that they didn't lose it, you know, and then develop from there. So I'm excited about them. I, you know, in addition to you and I, I got a chance to see Russ Landy's scouting report on Will Greer. Um, recently, who's you know, Russ was a the scouting director for the Alouettes, um, and then uh, a former scout with the Rams and the Browns, and he had a high um, grade on Greer. He had Greer as his second ranked quarterback in this class, and really saw him as a guy who had a potential to be a Pro Bowl player um, in the league. And you know, for people may have forgotten. Russ also had high grades for Tom Brady and Mark Bolger, two guys who were drafted pretty late. So, um, you know, I think everybody who really watches the tape and saw what we saw in Greer's is excited about his future. Yeah, I mean, and, and let's be honest, Carolina could come to the determination that, you know, maybe it's after this year or after two years, you know, Cam Newton has always been a guy that's overly relied on his athleticism to make plays. He's never been like this precision passer. And as he's taken a beating over his career, as he's gotten older, some of that athleticism, some of, you know, what made him so special at times is going to continue to slowly deteriorate. And you kind of wonder that if they really like what they see from Greer after one year, after two years, you wonder if they would say, you know what, we're going to move in a different direction and and we're going to legitimately give Greer a chance because I, I love the pairing of Greer to Samuel and DJ Moore in terms of, yeah, would they still have to go out and get a you know, one big guy to compliment them. Sure. Whether that's for Will Greer or another quarterback or still Cam Newton, they probably still are one wide receiver short at some point, you know, who, who could be a little bit different, but 
the way that those two receivers, Samuel and DJ Moore, win, I think really complements Will Greer and his style of play tremendously. So I'm I'm excited for those. You know, I know Greer's going to be a guy, and the Panthers in general. I'm going to be excited to watch them in preseason because I'm sure we're not going to see much of Cam Newton, if at all. So we're probably going to see a lot of Will Greer in preseason. And I'm kind of excited just to kind of see, you know, how he does. And he might even get a lot of first team reps if if they bring Cam along slowly. So we might even get a chance to see him, you know, start getting acclimated to those two wide receivers right from the get go. So it's going to be kind of fun to watch that one. Yeah, I think those are great points. And and even Chris Hogan, you can add to that equation, is a guy who's very good um, getting open on quick acceleration type of routes and getting the ball to him early. So you made excellent points on all accounts, especially about Newton and his career and what could happen in a year or two. Yeah, absolutely. So we can talk about quarterbacks all night because it's so fun kind of dissecting the landing spots. But we'll leave it with one final question. I'll open the floor to you. Is there anybody, and it doesn't have to be a big name, it could be a UDFA, it could be a late rounder, is there anyone that you have your eyes on in terms of the landing spot? I saw you on Twitter today, and I don't even know if how to, I don't even know if I pronounce his name right. Is it Alex Magoo? Yes. That, he was a guy I remember you talking about. Was, it, was that only one year ago? Is that two years yeah, ago? Now? One year ago. It was one year ago. You liked them. Mark Schofield liked them. I remember t- hearing both of you guys talk about them. Is there anybody like that? I, I mean, the obvious one probably would be Brett Rippon because I knew you were a fan pre-draft of him. So maybe it's him. Is there another guy that kind of said in the back of your mind you want to tell people, keep an eye on this guy, this landing spot. I'm intrigued by the talent if he gets an opportunity. Easton Stick with the with the Los Angeles Chargers. I like Easton Stick. There's something about him as a player, and that something is his comfort as a pocket passer. He's someone that the bullets can be flying around him, big defenders can be in his face, and he has that feel like Lamar Jackson does, like Tom Brady does, like many quarterbacks, regardless of how athletic or not athletic they are. They have the ability to just shuffle their feet and make a small adjustment and keep their eyes downfield. And Stick has that. But he also has running back or he has athlete type of speed. He has athlete and really running back or wide receiver type of short area quickness and sudden change of direction. And he's physical. He's 220 pounds and he's a pretty physical guy. Um, and he, so to me, getting to work with Phillip Rivers he can absorb some of the lessons that Philip Rivers can show him just through working with him every day and apply that to, you know, just basic decisions with reading the field and how to manipulate defenders a little bit better. I would not be surprised at all if he turns into a guy who, who can be a viable um, starter or at least a journeyman type of player who gets multiple chances in the league because of his athletic skill set, his pocket presence, and really his ability to make plays off script. Um, so, yeah, he's the one I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, I think he's a, an intriguing one. You know, as the college football season concluded this year, I felt like Stick really had a lot of momentum. People were talking about him. And then maybe it was just a poor week. It, it kind of felt like all his momentum and buzz that he was generating kind of built up to the start of the East West shrine game. And then a lot of people who were down there and, you know, said that he really didn't look 
the part down there and it didn't match what they had seen on film. And that's goes, you know, and then all of a sudden the buzz of Easton stick and what people thought about him a lot, that, that buzz kind of subsided a little bit and it might've just been a, a poor week at the shrine game. And, you know, a lot of people said it didn't match up to the film. So if you're people who trust the film on him, you know, maybe he should have continued to generate a little bit of buzz in the pre-draft months, you know, and, and be looked at as a guy. So I, the landing spot, I think you, you make great points is, is really ideal to, to sit there behind rivers and maybe down the line, get an opportunity. So that's going to be a fun one to kind of see, you know, if he gets that opportunity, uh, you know, down the line. So let's transition this to running backs. And I'm going to start with a name, probably not where most people usually start, but I know you were a pretty decent fan of him pre-draft. I think he probably was the surprise running back selection in the top 100. And that's Alexander Madison at a Boise State. Maybe just take us through a little bit of what you liked about Madison because we didn't talk about him on the first time you were on the show before the draft and 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 what you kind of make now having some draft capital attached to him and the landing spot in Minnesota. Well, you know, certainly the 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 Chicago Bears spent a top 100 pick visit with him. So he was on their board too. They just probably were like, we can get David Montgomery versus him. Yeah, we're going to go with Montgomery. But if Montgomery was gone, I wouldn't have been surprised at all if they decided – to wait and, and try and get go for Madison a little bit later. What I like about Madison is he's a very refined runner, and that means that he understands how to – he exhibits good judgment as a between-the-tackles player and really any type of scheme that he runs behind. He understands how to read the field, anticipate penetration, deal with it, and that all involves how your eyes – how you anticipate what you're supposed to see what actually happens and being able to spot it peripherally as well straight ahead, then also be able to adjust your footwork and have a, a well-ingrained toolbox of footwork patterns to solve the problems that are in front of you. And he's very good at being able to solve problems with his footwork. He's very efficient. A good example is, and you know, I'm borrowing from your, your cohort here, Matt Caraccio, when we talk about solutions and solving problems. Um, but Put it to you this way: With running back, it's very, it's very funny because you'll look at someone like Kenyon Drake or even David Montgomery, his like, you know, his junior year. Those were guys that can jump cut out of the the stadium. You know, they could, the, you know, they're so good at being able to make these dramatic cuts. But oftentimes, jump cuts mean jumping forward. You see them jump forward and then move laterally. Well. A lot of running backs make mistakes in the NFL because they come from the college game and they jump two to three yards in towards the line of scrimmage before they make the lateral cut. And that penetration that they were, they're jumping into is quick enough to grab them and drop them for a loss. The best running backs in the NFL, guys like Chris Johnson, when in his prime, all they had to do was open their hips. All they had to do was just open their hips, pointing their toe, just like a wide receiver does with like a, a speed cut. And, and that opens their hips, and without having to jump two to three yards, they can take one step, suddenly their hips are turned, their feet are still on the ground, so now they can just accelerate. And, the, and guys can be four or five yards in the backfield against them, and that one turn, they, they make that defender miss because they didn't jump in towards them. That takes maturity to do. Kenyon Drake finally figured that out last year. Like I started to see him start to figure out that he could do that 
And it's probably because he worked with Frank Gore, um, who was always very good at that. Um, so he figured that out instead of jumping in towards the line. Alexander Madison's already figured that out. He's already good at doing things like that. He already has great pad level. He runs with naturally strong pad level, so he's always kind of at a good leverage point to be able to attack and use his pads and either get under defenders, hit and get fly and float over them, or you know, bowl through them and push them. He's got good strength. He's he's his quickness and sudden change of direction are are definitely starting caliber, even though they may have a low percentage in terms of versus all the running backs that have ever played, you know, um, been measured that he may be on a lower percentage tier and that gets the analytics people a little, a little bit more down on him. But to me, when I look at the tiers of what's starter caliber, committee caliber, reserve caliber, my starter caliber tier is more forgiving than he's got to be in the 80th or 90th percentile to be good. No, he doesn't. You know, I don't need to be in the 90th percentile of, of race of, of drivers to be a good driver. You know, I mean, it, you know, if, especially if we're counting race car drivers, you know, I mean, it's just like there are certain things that you can be good enough in and still be an NFL starter. And he has that in addition to the fact that he's an excellent receiver out of the backfield, um, smooth with his routes, decent blocker. And he's a smart kid. This is a kid with like a three point. He had like, I don't remember what it was. I think he had a, over a 4.0 average, like above 4.0. And he worked and he was in a school that taught in English and Spanish. So all the math and science subjects were taught in Spanish and he wasn't a fluent Spanish speaker when he came to school. So this is a kid from, you know, from what you would call a, a lower socioeconomic class of a neighborhood. And, and I believe it was Stockton, California, maybe trying to remember for sure what area in California where there's a, there was a lot of gang activity, but he had a really great family unit. um, And he was smart enough to be able to go into a school in a challenging situation and learn what he was able to learn and com- make grades that he made and excel in sports. That's someone who has his stuff together. And so when I see him getting drafted here, I think the Vikings were looking for a, so- a good football player and a solid human being and a smart guy who can absorb things quickly. And he may not be the flashiest back, but I think that he's a guy that can give you um, thousand yard seasons who can give you um, who can be a surprisingly strong back. I honestly, after his 40 yard time that was run in, in his pro day after that, which was an improved time, he would have been the number three back on my board. instead of the number five back, that's how much of a difference it would have made just because that added difference of the long speed um, that, that was there is good. And also I like, his professional ability. He was someone who got hurt at the end of his junior year or the end of his sophomore year after a pretty good season. And he realized I need to do more preventative training. I need to figure that out and apply that. And he talked about that entering the, his junior season that he was doing pre-training or prehab. He called it prehab. And he did that. And he had a very strong stretch run last year, which tells you that he figured out correctly how to do this work professionally in terms of how to approach his body and how to approach the the season after it not working out. So he learns fast, put all that together. And I think you've got a great one, two punch with Dalvin cook and a guy who if needed 
can be the lead back and they can put in Boone or Rock Thomas or Amir Abdullah as the second back if Calvin if Dalvin Cook doesn't um, finish the season. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they targeted him in the third round, I think, speaks volumes that they want to be a team that really controls the, the game with the ground. You know, you, you, you start to see that a little bit the back half of last season. And Dalvin Cook, as talented as he is, has had some issues staying healthy. And without him... You know, they kind of lose a lot in terms of what they want to do. But Madison now, I think, changes that narrative a little bit that you're right. He could form a nice one-two punch with Dalvin Cook. But at the same time, if he's asked to take on more of a workhorse role, he has shown the capabilities to do that. He's a guy, like you said, who can play on all three downs. You know, so I think it, it makes a lot of sense for, for what the the Vikings need they don't have a lot of massive holes on that roster you know they they plug some spots on the offensive line that they needed to do you know and then probably having another competent running back behind Dalvin Cook that can play on all three downs was probably pretty high on the list of of you know of weaknesses and holes on the roster so I think it it was a great landing spot and he suits what they want to do there uh of having that guy who can play on all three downs if needed so that's that's going to be one that I think he's still being slept on a little bit because not enough people were talking about him pre-draft. Not enough people were like you, you know, saying how talented of a player he was. People didn't see him high on, you know, pre-draft rankings here or there. So I, I think he's still flying under the radar a little bit for those reasons. And and that's kind of, you know, I think he's going to surprise some people uh, once they see him perform at the NFL level. Let's take this to another under-the-radar guy. I'm going to circle back to the top guys momentarily, but I, I want to pick your brain. I know we talked about him a little bit before the, the draft. We were fans of him here at Saturday Sunday, and I know you liked him as well. And that's Darwin Thompson. And the landing spot with the Chiefs, to me, is really intriguing. They didn't invest in a running back you know, early in the draft. They obviously went out and got Carlos Hyde in the offseason to go with Damian Williams. What do you think about Darwin Thompson and that and potentially, you know, being a factor in that Kansas City offense? Well, listen, you know, I started my fantasy writing career. I, I write a column called The Gut Check, and I've written probably I'm gonna probably be writing five hundred of them by the time the season's over. It'll be I'll be at my five hundredth um edition of that column. But the very first column I ever wrote was about a short um, but not necessarily small running back out of Villanova who Gil Brandt said if he were an, a couple inches taller and about 10 pounds heavier, he'd be a top five pick in the NFL draft. He had two ACL tears um, in his college career. One of them was before he got signed by Florida State, and um, they, Florida State promptly dropped him, and then he – and that was when he was like playing basketball. I think he was just like playing a pickup basketball game, and he and he slipped or something. It like was a non-contact injury, non-football injury, and they revoked their scholarship and turned him down. He ended up at Villanova. Then he slipped on some ice and tore the other ACL during the middle of his career, and he still ended up going in the second round. And that was Brian Westbrook, who had a heck of a career. Um, when I look at Darwin Thompson, I think I see it. Uh, you know. A not as fast Brian Westbrook with a little more thump, a guy who can catch the football, someone who can run between the tackles pretty darn well, um, and who has terrific contact balance and skill to pull through wraps and reaches, especially in the open field. You are not 
you got to hit and wrap this guy to bring him down in the open field. And NFL teams are going to find that out um, pretty quickly with him. He's already been labeled a playmaker um, after OTAs because of the number of plays that he was making um, early on. And I think Andy Reid knows very well how to use backs like Darwin Thompson because he's the one that was enamored with Brian Westbrook in the first place, coached him in the senior bowl, and then promptly drafted him. Um, so I love the fit, even though James Williams is there. And as you mentioned him earlier, he's a heck of a receiving back. Um, but I think that what they can do with Thompson, you know, to maybe even help substitute or make the impact of the loss of Tyree Kill, if Tyree Kill doesn't play, to pair with Nicole Hardman, they can do some things with jet, you know, jet look, jet sweep, fly sweep type of stuff, screen passes, draw plays, but he can also work in between the tackles. And it may not occur this year. I mean, certain, you know, Damian Williams played really well last year, but I think Damian Williams isn't the most imaginative, solution-oriented back. I think he's competent in every area, and that makes him a decent starter, a guy who's physical with speed, but not great side-to-side lateral movement. Carlos Hyde, if you know, I wonder. I wonder about him. Like, I know people are – I've heard various – I've heard a lot of people be kind of down on him, but I look at it and go – Thinking about Carlos Hyde, he ended up on a team that were clearly um, Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley were feuding. Might have well been a soap opera there in terms of the way that they were feuding. And the fact that they would add Carlos Hyde, they had Duke Johnson, signed Duke Johnson to a long-term contract, then promptly drafted in my arg- my my eyes the best running back in the in the class. Though you know. All due respect to Saquon Barkley. Um, <laughs> but they draft one of the best running backs in the class in the second round. And, you know, who was running the show in Cleveland at that point? Like, there was so much dysfunction there that Carlos Hyde was doomed. I mean, they didn't even, they couldn't even figure out what they were doing on offense until they, until the, you know, Dorsey basically went to the owner and the owner was like, yeah, good. Let's get rid of both of them. And, and they did. And then they promptly shipped Hyde off to Jacksonville or where Blake Bortles, you know, got benched and the offensive line was mangled. What kind of shot was he going to have all last year? So is he bad and gone downhill or did he just end up in two really crappy situations and now he's in a good situation and he's an underrated player. So I don't think this year's the year for Darwin Thompson, but I think next year or the year after he could make a move and be a guy that at the very least gives you Austin Eckler type of production and at the at the best, he could give you Brian Westbrook plus production. Yeah, I mean, I love the point that you brought up, and it's something that I've I've talked about a little bit on here as well. Is that Andy Reid could look at the combination of Darwin Thompson and Nicole Hardman as as a way of creatively using those two guys in situations that he would have used Tyree Kill. Now, you know. Will they have success like Tyree Kill had? Who knows? I mean, that that's asking for a lot of how successful Tyree Kill's been. But schematically and game plan wise, I think those two guys could be what how Andy Reid looks at as they're going to be two guys that I can use to kind of at least create some of the production that Tyree Kill had and still kind of put the defense in terms of fearing what might be coming because those guys have unique skill sets. Mikkel Hallman, obviously a blazing 40 time and speed and, and quickness and, and what Darwin Thompson brings as well. I think they're both going to be guys again, opportunity there in Kansas city to be a part of that offense. So I think, I think that's a, a really good point there. And yeah, he's a guy who 
that range of Austin Eckler to Brian Westbrook, I think is a really fair range of, of him being somewhere in that mix. So I think it's going to be interesting to kind of see how quickly he gets an opportunity there because, you know, I, I think Damian Williams is a solid back. Other people disagree with that and kind of think he was a flash in the pan last year. But if he happens to be a flash in the pan, who knows? Then maybe that opportunity even comes sooner rather than later for Darwin Thompson. So, you know, that's going to be another one that, you know, we could kind of glean him a lot from, you know, mini camp reports and OTA reports and then training camp and kind of just to kind of see what they're talking about him. Because if he's making plays already, he might get an opportunity a lot quicker than maybe we even think he could. So he's going to be a fun, exciting player to watch. If we circle back to what right now seems to be the consensus for the fantasy world, but even before the fantasy world, I think most people had Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, David Montgomery, somewhere in there, probably top of their running back board in some order, maybe a couple other guys mixed in there as well. But those are the guys probably getting as much conversation pre-draft. Did the draft and the landing spots for any of those guys make you change your opinion on maybe the success level or the immediate production level that any of those guys could have that maybe you thought about this, but then where they ended up maybe made you change a little bit. I haven't had a chance to dig deep into the post RSP yet. It's on my to-do list as soon as the school year finishes. (laughs) So I haven't had a chance to kind of see your take on the top of the running backs, uh, you know, Jacob Sanders and Montgomery, what you might think of them now that they have landing spots. Yeah. I mean, I like where Jacobs landed. Obviously adding Trent Brown is helpful. If Colton Miller has improved as much as John Gruden's doing the PR campaign with him um, and he plays well at left tackle, then I think that that can be very helpful. So uh, Josh Jacobs remained where he was for me. David Montgomery, I think long-term that's going to be a decent place for him, but I think having to share the share the limelight a little bit with Tari Cohen takes a little bit of luster off of him, but not so much that you would, you would dramatically change where he, where I had him pre-draft. I think that because he's a good receiver and he's a, he's a rugged football player and he plays for a team that I think even though fans didn't appreciate Jordan Howard's lack of, you know, great speed, I think the bears understand what the value out of a running back and, and, and Montgomery brings that. Um, Sanders, didn't change for me. I didn't like Sanders as much as other people did before. I like him a little less short term now, but I but I like but I think long term he has a chance to be a good starter. And what I mean by that is this is Jordan Howard, go back to him. Tough runner, tough football player who's played with who's played through shoulder injuries that would take a lot of guys off the field and still produced. And he's a guy who who is a, one of the best pass protectors in the league at the running back position. He's playing behind a really good offensive line in Philadelphia. He also protects the football. Miles Sanders does not protect the football. So when I, when, and that concerns me, yeah, Sony Michelle didn't protect the ball very well. And he went on to not fumble, but all, all but once last year, I think he fumbled only once last year. He may not have fumbled at all. It was a dramatically different outcome for him than what his Georgia career was about. Miles Sanders, I mean, his his fumble rate was even worse than Sonny Michelle's. I mean, it was atrocious. And so it's hard for me to look at a guy who still has a little work to do as a pass protector, has really bad ball security, 
and sometimes tries too hard to be Saquon Barkley when that's not his skill set. Like he's shifty, yes, but he's not, you know, he's not, you know, Saquon Barkley who can make one step and and go in directions that you would never anticipate unless you were, you know, buying some sort of well-engineered machine, not a human being, you know, and, and Sanders doesn't have that to that degree, but he tries to pull that stuff because, well, you know, he had Saquon Barkley. He was playing, he was playing behind him for, for what, two, three years. So that was kind of, he tried a little hard to do that. Those things are correctable, but it might take some time. And if you, Screw up early in a in a team that has a lot of committee situation looks anyway. You're not going to get a lot of chances, and when you have a guy you know in your first year, if you continue to do that, and I think that he has a lot to prove with the ball security. So this year, I'm not buying him at all in fantasy leagues. I don't want to touch him. Don't want to go anywhere near him. I think Jordan Howard is is the safest play. Doesn't mean he has the great upside though, because Sanders or Clement or you know, will at least get enough opportunities that may, you know, hold him back a little bit. But if I'm looking in the red zone, who am I going to hand the ball to? Miles Sanders or or Jordan Howard? I'm going with Howard. Am I going to close out games? Am I going to give the ball to Miles Sanders who fumbles once every 38 times? Or am I going to give it to Jordan Howard who, you know, you could strap his shoulder in and it'll pop out in the middle of the game, you know, and he'll still get up and go to the sideline and the play later, come back and, tear off a 12-yard gain after getting hit a number of times. I'm going with Howard, who's still in the prime of his career and who's kind of underappreciated. So that's my thought with it is that Sanders is getting a little too much love for my taste. Yeah, Matt Williamson was a guest of mine on the podcast last week, and we talked a little bit about the ball security issues and that it's going to be one of those things that until Miles Sanders proves it, he might not be, and he might not even get an opportunity to mess up in a big situation. It might just be to close out games this year. We traded for Jordan Howard. We're going to utilize him, you know, and, and it could just be from this year already that even if he's holding on to the ball earlier in the game, you know, in big spots and big moments, they still might in the back of their mind say, this is a guy who's had some ball security issues in the past. We're going to go to a guy who doesn't maybe offer the big play potential as much, but we know in this moment of the game, he's going to protect the ball more. So I, I, we both, discussed that while we were fans of Miles Sanders, we did have some reservations about the ball security. And we also talked about it. I'm glad you brought it up the, his decision-making and maybe decisiveness of trying to replicate Saquon Barkley and, and how that was uh, something that he did have to kind of fix at the next level as well, because at times maybe he was able to get away with it, you know, in college, other times he wasn't. He probably definitely won't be able to get away with some of the things he was trying to do, you know, with the NFL defenses, linebackers, the speed of the D-lines and, and these guys at the next level. So really good points about Sanders. Interesting about Montgomery with, with Cohen. I think that's right. I think Cohen is not going to lose a lot of touches there. I think he's still a very unique game there. Anybody on the flip side, one guy to kind of end part one here in the running back conversation Anybody land in a landing spot that you got excited about? Maybe you didn't move him up, but got more excited about, or maybe a guy that you did now have a, a little bit of a different perspective on in terms of maybe how successful he could be because of the landing spot. Well, you know, Daryl Henderson to me was my, I believe my number one space player in the pre-draft. Meaning that if you put him in situations where he can be given the ball in space, 
or on the edges of a defense, he's going to really thrive. Well, now he goes to an outside zone game and with the Rams and with everything going on with Todd Gurley, you know, the, the issue with that, I mean, I don't want to touch on that in a minute, but Daryl said, let's say Todd Gurley's completely healthy and he's fine. Well, even so, let's remember, you know, a lot of people want to blame Jared Goff for the Super Bowl loss. Like they, or at least place a lot of the blame on Jared Goff. Um, but if you really look at the Rams offense, it's a handful of plays. They all look the same at the pre-snap phase. They're meant to like make the defense guess at three or four different variations of what could happen and put them in run pass binds or different types of binds in terms of where they should cover on the field and the flat, that type of thing. That worked really well for most of the season. But when you head into the Super Bowl and you're playing, you're coaching against the grand master of coaches, you can't just come into a game with a handful of plays like that that have been well scouted and you have, you know, basically 32 games worth of tape plus the playoffs to watch them for Bill Belichick to watch them and not figure them out. You've got to bring more to the table than that. So there's a level of there's a level of coaching hubris from Sean McVay that he didn't have as many options. And then they're missing the guy like, you know, Cooper Cup, who adds some versatility to what they can do. And that t- took away more of the resources of players who maybe could have done other things, but now had to kind of help replace what Cup brings to the table. Because you never see, you know, Josh Reynolds used as a as a you know a rebounder. He might be one of the he might have been the best rebounding receiver in his class. And have you ever seen him actually being thrown um, more than three or four back shoulder fades or go up and get it kind of rebound balls in that offense? I haven't seen it. I've seen maybe two targets over the time that I've watched him over the past two seasons. So, you, you know, they need more diversity in that offense. And part of that is, as well, they want to make everything look the same, but we need to have another element in there that makes the defense have to account for one more thing they have to possibly deal with. And that would be Daryl Henderson, who can play that Camaro role with the jet sweep. You know, you can use that jet sweep. Now it's not just going to possibly Cooks or more often to Robert Woods, as we saw, or occasionally Cooper Cup. But now it's a true burner with great acceleration and contact balance once he gets down, once he gets some acceleration built up. That's going to be really dangerous. You can use him and Gurley in the backfield. He's a good receiver. So there's a lot of things they could do with him, even with Gurley on the field. But now you add the injury element and the the rumor of arthritis and the potential that he's dealing with arthritis. And let's just look at it this way. The worst case scenario is that Todd Gurley now is never going to be an elite back again in terms of fantasy because his arthritis is progressed to the stage where now they're going to have to manage his reps in practice. They're going to have to manage his reps in games. He may have more inflammation and more swelling that may prevent him from being able to function well in next games, you know, in games after the one that he played in where he had the swelling and maybe he has to be managed with more care and there may be more issues where he misses time. That's the worst case. Now you have Darrell Henderson and what he can do. And suddenly you know, he's a guy that can give you lead back touches and you can manage Gurley even more and use him in more in high leverage red zone situations where he really excels or maybe certain types of pass receiving or certain plays where they feel like they can limit the number of touches and then focus on high leverage opportunities. That's the worst case for Gurley. The best case is, you know, Gurley's had arthritis. A lot of players have arthritis. He, 
He played through um, a torn ligament, didn't tell anybody what it was. And I understand that about Gurley. Like, he may not even thought he had a tear. Though, to be honest with you, what I bet is that he probably heard a pop and he did not want to leave that Chiefs game to save his life. Um, And he's a tough guy because I remember researching how back in the day when he was in high school, that there was a story from Ken Bradley, the sporting news, that when he was at Lincoln High School in North Carolina, in Tarboro, North Carolina, that the game before the championship game, state championship, he sprained both ankles, one of them in two different places. So he had three different ankle sprains on two ankles um, heading into that game, and he played both ways in that game. And Ken Bradley said he couldn't even run in a straight line. And he intercepted a pass. They said he was a combination of Julius Peppers. Um, I'm trying to remember who the cornerback was that they they compared him to, and then you know what he did at running back. And he ran for like a, a huge. He had a huge day. He gutted it out playing on three ankle sprains. Um, you know, in that in that game, that's the kind of player Todd Gurley was. So do you expect him when they're on a Super Bowl run that he, he's got a torn ligament that doesn't need surgery, but he can kind of hide and play through that he's not going to – if he can help it, he's going to stay in there. If they're going to let him, they're going to have to – he's the type of guy they're going to drag off – they have to drag off the field, and he's going to have to look like basically crap warmed over for him to, to, to basically be pulled off the field. And I think that they decided – fine if he can be a decoy and look he had 100 yards two weeks later after that injury against Detroit so maybe he's going to be okay but then the you know when you tear a ligament and you've had a couple weeks rest maybe you feel better but then after that you probably can't give much more because you've aggravated the injury throughout the year so you know you look at it from that perspective and say "Eh, the arthritis may be two three four years down the line where it really shortens his career if at all and he can manage that he just was dealing with a, a tear. He's healed up, didn't need surgery. He's going to be fine. You know, if that happens, and that's the best case scenario, you're still going to get Darrell Henderson where maybe Gurley's like top-end Mark Ingram, meaning, you know, RB5, RB6. Ingram was RB6 last year. And then you've got Alvin Kamara who, you know, still, I mean, you know, before he, you know, even if he's the compliment Kamara-like, player rather than the featured guy you can still end up with a top 15 player in that regard so i'm a real fan of the the Durell henderson landing spot whether Gurley's ready to go or whether he's not yeah absolutely and the, the it's ironic that you had labeled him your number one space player and then he lands with the rams who with all their motion and movement you know, I always joked around when I watched Henderson that like, it seemed like the basically the, the field just parted for him and there was massive gaping holes in Memphis. The only holes I ever saw bigger than that when watching film was Richard Penny at San Diego State. There right. were times that it just was it, it, it was amazing to even think the defense was trying at times. And I know they were, but there were there were there were highlights and, and games where you watched Henderson at Memphis and Penny at San Diego State. It, it, it was mind boggling to see nobody even close to them and then you're like well he's never going to go somewhere where the space opens up that much for him and okay it's not going to open up like that at the nfl level but he does go to a team where the defenses are going to so much have to account for cup if he's back healthy and you know and and robert woods and brandon cooks and like you said maybe they have bolted him on the backfield at the same time and Gurley's in there and the tight ends still have some talent that you know you could at least use them you know as decoys and all the motion and movement that they do, 
Henderson's going to see a lot of space at times. And I, I think, like you said, whether he is just a compliment to Gurley, whether he gets an opportunity to seize even a bigger part of that, it's going to be kind of really exciting to watch him in that offense and kind of see, you know, what McAvey kind of plans up for him. Because like you said, they would use those jet sweeps on guys like Robert Woods and, and they'd be really effective. And, you know, Robert Woods is a really good player of it, but, one of his attributes is not like blazing speed or quickness. Like maybe it'd be quickness, but not blazing speed and explosion. Right. And now you, you put somebody like Henderson where that is his calling card. And, and you could kind of see, okay, like, okay, we might have something here, even, even more explosive than we already had. And we already had one of the most explosive offenses. So it's going to be fun to watch the, the landing spots. I think for some of the running backs, we talked about Madison, you know, we talked about Darwin Thompson, you know, now Henderson, you know, Jacobs, you know, the landing spots kind of are intriguing with the running backs. I think a lot of, I think, I think a lot of them have landed in intriguing spots. So it's going to be fun to watch these guys. Oh, absolutely. You know, and L.A., I mean, doesn't L.A., doesn't Hollywood still have that set with like with like Moses and the Red Sea that parted? And, you know, when Charles and <laughs> Heston played Moses, do we need to get like a little white beard and a staff and some Ten Commandments for, you know, Henderson as he as he kind of strolls through that those big holes at the off that the, the Rams line were able to open? I mean, we might get a we, we might have to call him Moses like it, it, if if they're able to open him like they did last year. Absolutely. So Matt, this was such a blast. This is just part one, guys. If you're enjoying this, uh, we knew we were going to go deep talking about these guys. So I asked Matt if he'd be willing to do a little bit of a double header, uh, part one, quarterbacks and running backs. And then part two, we'll talk about the pass catchers. Matt, just let the audience know. I'll let you do this both times. Uh, obviously, where they can find your work, uh, what's going on over there. Sure. You can find me at mattwaldmanrsp.com. That's my site. And I have a number of writers, including Mark Schofield and Jay Moyer, um, who, and Jackson Block, who is a, um, coordinate, who is a recruiting coordinator for, um, Colorado, the University of Colorado, um, former All-State, um, defensive and, um, in high school, um, who all, all their all those guys are writing for me as well as David Agono, who is a former um, defensive back at the University of West, or at West Virginia. Um, you know during their um, Sugar Bowl team those um, recent years. So I have a number of guys there, and you can find um, my publication, my draft publication, mattwaldman.com. You can order it from there and download it immediately, and that's where you can find the RSP as well as my YouTube channel, Matt Walden's RSP Film Room, where I cover a lot of anal- video analysis of these prospects. Guys, make sure you're checking out the RSP Film Room. Make sure if you haven't purchased the RSP, you're doing it, the pre-RSP and then the post-RSP. There's so much information. Make sure you're reading uh, so many of the profiles, so many of everything he lays out, all the different rankings and discussions he has are all excellent stuff, guys. I cannot recommend it enough. So, Matt, thank you again so much for coming on. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Paul. Absolutely. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.